Good morning, church. I get the honor of reading scripture today from Psalm 19. We're going to stand, please. Sorry. <clears throat> the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you just so grateful for the words and psalms so that we can just meditate on them, so that they can be in our hearts, so that you can sift us and know that that's who you are. We praise you. We honor you. We're praying for Pastor Greg as he comes up today. That Let him be bold in what he needs to teach us. Let us have hearts and minds ready to hear it and legs and feet to put it to action. We praise you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to be here. I love the song. That song always touches me. My sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That is such a great reminder for us every day. Thanks for singing that song. That was, that was fantastic to get this morning started. So thank you, Restoration City Church, for this opportunity for me to come up here and practice and get a rep. So me and my wife felt called towards the pastoralship, and so I'm, I'm seeking and waiting for God to plant uh, me and her somewhere. But we are just excited to get this opportunity but way beyond that i really hope i glorify god and i edify me and you today so that is my goal and my prayer and i'm hoping that god will do that so matt texted me just a little bit ago said hey greg you are you available to come up i said yes thank you very much and he said would you mind doing psalm 19 and jumping into this series with us and so i said absolutely so we are going to be reviewing Psalm 19 today, and I'm looking forward to jumping in that with you today. So Matt's been laying out some six principles for you all as you guys are walking through this, this series in the Psalms, and I'm just going to run through them. Maybe it's your first time, so or maybe just to refresh us on what Matt is driving towards with these, with these Psalms and going through this. So principle number one is that the book of Psalms is a collection of prayers sung by God's people. So the Bible has different genres, and when you get to Psalms, you're looking at poetry and you're looking at hymns. Number two, the Psalms teach us to pray, giving us godly words for our fallen nature. 
I really want to camp out here for just one second. I, one thing I really like about the Psalms is when you look at it, the emotions that run through it run the whole spectrum. One song, psalm could be a praise psalm, which is what we're going to be looking at today, actually. And they're just, the psalmist is just glorifying God, like, God, you're awesome. God, you're amazing. I'm just so joyful in you. And then the very next psalm, the psalmist is, where are you, God? Like, you, like I am drowning here, and you are nowhere to be found. I love the psalms. The psalms are real. They deal with real human emotions or real human things that happen to us. And so I just I love that about the psalms and how real it is for us. Third principle Matt lays out is that the psalms embody the deepest theology demonstrated in prayer and song. You don't have to go to Romans to find theology, okay? You can find theology, and it's rich and deep in the psalms as it is in any other book in Scripture. Fourth, Psalms 1 and 2 are the doorway into all of the psalms. So if you haven't read Psalm 1 and 2, I highly recommend you visit those two. Fifth principle is Christ is the only one worthy to pray and sing the psalms, but the gospel worthies us to join him in doing so. Amen. And six, finally, approaching the psalms with Christ at the center enhances cherished intimacy with him. The psalms are his word. And approaching it with him, it does. It brings you closer to God, knowing that Jesus wrote them and having him in mind. All right, so those are the six principles for us. Let me pray over our time, and we'll jump in. Father God, you who created everything, you who gave us your word, and you who made every single soul God, I pray you would fill all of us today. Lord, would you speak to us and meet each of us where we're at? And, uh, and God, would your name be praised and glorified in this time? Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for the cross. It's all in your precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, so our minds and hearts are always active, always going. I saw a study online that said the mind, the average human mind, thinks over 6,000 thoughts a day. 6,000 thoughts a day. So question to start us off, church, what is your 6,000 thoughts every day filled with? What are you thinking of every single day? What am I putting my 6,000 thoughts on? Take our hearts. Our hearts are factories of desire. They're just factories of desire, constantly yearning, constantly gravitating towards the things of this world. And the makers of commercials know this. They portray me and you as being the happiest if you would have their product, if you would go get their product. And so what do our hearts do? Our hearts yearn for that. Our hearts chase that. But a question I want to put before us today, though, is what does God want me and you spending those 6,000 thoughts on? What does God want me and you desiring in our hearts okay so that's the big question that I want to ask today what does God want me and you thinking about and the Holy Spirit writing through King David gives us three answers to this question today and that's what we're going to discover in Psalm 19 so before we get into the text I just want to give you a map of where we're going so I'm going to give you two disclaimers to start then we're going to walk through the passage and at the end, I've got an application and then a conclusion. 
So to start off, two disclaimers. First off, we are going to talk about the things that King David is thinking about, is meditating on, is speaking of in this psalm, but it's not an exhaustive list of what God wants you and I thinking of. All of Scripture has many things that God would have us to fill our minds with. Okay, so just, this is not an exhaustive list. And then the second disclaimer I will give you is that this is not a strict order either. Okay, don't walk away from here thinking, well, I've got to think about God and his and, his, and, and the things of Scripture this way, in this order. Now, it's not a haphazard order, and we'll see that here in a little bit, but it's not a strict order that you have to go through. So just want to make those two disclaimers clear. And let's jump into the passage. So for Psalm 19, I thought it would be helpful to actually start this psalm at the end. Start with Psalm 1914 because it kind of sets up the stage of what David is doing. And we get to see what the previous 13 verses are saying. Okay, so let's read Psalm 19 verse 14. It says, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Okay, so David is sitting with his Lord. He's sitting with his rock, the only sure foundation that we have in this world. And he's sitting with his redeemer, the one that has redeemed him, the one that has bought him. Okay, so he is sitting with the God of the universe who loves him. And then David prays that the words and the thoughts of his heart would be pleasing to God. So everything we're going to see that David's thinking of and is speaking, he's hoping that it pleases God. And I just want to pause here before continuing on because I want to ask this question. I think there can be some confusion here is, well, can we really please God? Like, doesn't God love us already? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes, church. God loves you already. You cannot earn God's love. You cannot please him enough to make him love you. Ephesians 2, what does that say? It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not by any of your works. Colossians 1 says we were enemies in our minds and God loved us. So you cannot earn God's love, but there's a vast difference between earning God's love and pleasing God. Can we please God? Yes. And scripture actually calls us to make that our goal. See, pleasing God comes out of a thankful heart when you realize what God did for you on that cross and saving you out of your heart flows thankfulness. Out of your heart flows gratitude and out of your heart flows a desire to want to live a life that is pleasing to God. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 8 through 9 says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Paul's saying, if I'm in heaven, I want to please him. And if I'm here, I want to please him. I just want to live a life unto God. But it's joy-filled. It's not worry of, does God love me? We have that, church, so rest in that. Rest in that today. You are loved by God. But we, out of great joy and wonder and amazement of what he has done for us, can live a life that is pleasing to him. And David is saying, God, I pray my focus is pleasing to you today. So, again, back to the question, what pleases God when it comes to our thoughts? What does God want me and you dwelling on? So, first thing we see that God causes David, the Holy Spirit moves in David to meditate on, to think on, is the heavens. 
is what's above him, the sky, what David looks up and sees above his head. Verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So this is pure speculation on my part. The text doesn't say it. I just picture King David here sitting outside during the day. So he's alone, he's outside, and he's looking up into the sky. It's probably daytime, because we're gonna see he focuses on the sun here, but he's just looking up at just the expanse of what God has made. And David points out four things that he sees, he's meditating on, he's just looking up at God's creation, and he points out four things about what he sees. First thing he, said, he notices about the sky and the heavens is that it has purpose. It has purpose, verse one. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Church, there is nothing, there is nothing you will ever put your eyes on in creation that was not meant for God's glory. There's nothing you will ever look at, not just the sky, everything here on this earth. I mean, the human body alone is just a miracle. When you think of all the things that have to work just in our bodies alone, everything that you put your eyes on was first made for the glory of God. And David's just, that's just the first thing that captures his attention. Wow, God, what you made, you are awesome. You are mighty. All glory to you, God. Second thing that David notices is that it always glorifies God. Verse 2, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. There is never a time when the sky is not glorifying God. I love it when I drive to work in the morning, a, lot, a large portion of my drive has me going east. And it just seems like every morning, just the sky, is, is, it's a new picture. It's just this new array of light. It's the way the shadows, or I'm sorry, the, the way the clouds kind of disperse the light. It's just, it's brand new every single morning. I'm just thinking, God, you've been doing this for thousands and thousands, thousands of years. It is just amazing. All the time, the sky is glorifying God. The third thing that David notices when he's looking up at the sky and he's thinking about and meditating on is he sees that the heavens speak. Verse 3 and 4, they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. David is not speaking out of both sides of his mouth here, just so you know this. Yet, yes, the voice, I'm sorry, the, the skies, the heavens don't speak as we do to each other, but they have a voice. They do speak to everyone. And nobody will ever be able to stand before God one day and say, oh, I, I, I just didn't know. No, because God is speaking. His creation is speaking. I love something that Abraham Lincoln said. Abraham Lincoln said this, I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon the earth and be an atheist, but I cannot conceive how a man could look up into the heavens and say there is no God. 
I really like that quote. I would, I would disagree with Abraham Lincoln a little bit. I think there's enough here just on this earth that for to give to, so that nobody is without excuse just in what we see here, the mountains, the oceans, everything. But I absolutely agree with him. Yeah, how can you look up into the sky and say there's no God? And the Apostle Paul says something very similar in Romans 1, 18 through 20. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the God, all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The heavens are speaking. Every single day, their voice is going out. And the fourth and last thing that David's sitting here just contemplating and he sees is that he, he notices it goes to everyone. Verse 4, their voice goes out into all the earth. This, you don't have to go to Africa or Asia or North America to behold the glory of God. Everywhere, anywhere on this earth, the sky is speaking to all people. And then at the end of this, David, this is why I think he's sitting outside. At the end of this, David zeroes in on the sun. He could have talked about the stars, the clouds, the sky. Um, he could have talked about the blueness of the sky, but he focuses and zeroes in on the sun. And he says, it's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. And why wouldn't David focus on the sun? I, I looked up some interesting facts. This is just a snippet of some of the most, most amazing things about the sun. Approximately 109 planet Earths would fit on the surface of the sun, and more than 1 million planet Earths would fit inside of the sun. That's how big that thing is. The sun is the closest star to the Earth at 93 million miles away, yet at 93 million miles away, the sun is responsible for giving us life for causing plants to grow, for warming us. And at its core, if you think, if you think it's hot in Georgia in the summertime, at the center of the sun, the temperature is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. And all God said was, let there be. And it came about. God is so amazing. David's comparing it to like a man coming from his home what the, bride, what the bridegrooms would do two, 3,000 years ago is they would pick a day when they were going to go get their bride, and they would leave their homes with this great procession of people following them. And they would go to their bride's house and get their bride and take her off to wed her. And David's saying it's like the sun. The sun is just like that, full of joy and beaming. Just like a man running a race, a well-conditioned athlete. I want to just note something here, just to be clear. We don't read the Psalms to get scientific facts. We realize the sun is still and the earth rotates around the sun. But the Psalms contain hyperbole, just striking language meant to make a point, And that's what David is doing here. He's not trying to give some scientific facts about the sun. He's just comparing it to a star athlete that just can't be stopped and is like a champion. But back to the verses, did you read anything in there about David wanting to earn something from God? Or did you just hear him just giving glory to God and just being soaked in joy with what he's beholding above him? 
Okay, he is just looking to please God, and he is being filled with joy in the process. I was thinking about an application point for us right here, and that is, I, I just, we are so often entertained, church, by things that, frankly, just are not that entertaining compared to what God has made. I get outside some, I think is an application here for us, get out into what God has made, behold what he has made, and marvel at it, and spend time putting God's creation in front of you. Then David is drawn to something else God has created to glorify himself. He's sitting there looking at the sky, and then his eyes drift down to God's word. But God's word is just like the sun, too. It goes out to all people, and it warms all people. And that's the second thing that God calls David's mind and heart to. And David speaks of God's word in verses 7 through 9, and he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And the decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. So when David wrote this, he would have only had the Torah, the first five books in the Bible. He, so he's speaking about what Moses has written from Genesis to Deuteronomy. But this is applicable for all of Scripture as God was progressively putting his words on paper. Okay, so this is all of God's Bible that he has given us. And notice here, before we jump into this, notice that David says, of the Lord constantly, the law of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, not, not the law of the state, not the law of the government, not the law, not what you say is true, not what I say is true. No, what God has given us as his truth in scripture, that is what David is marveling at. So here's what we're going to see. David's going to put forth a description, and then he's going to talk about a benefit for us, okay? He's going to say, God's word is this, and here's the benefit of it. So let's see the first thing that David says. First thing David notices is that the law of the Lord is perfect. Nothing needs changing about God's law. It, it is perfect as written. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing needs to be subtracted from it. And the benefit to us is that it refreshes our soul, church. Just like a perfect day, perfect weather, it refreshes us. So question, are you, are you stressed? Are you tired? Come to God's word and sit with him. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. God wants to give us rest, and God's word will refresh you. Second thing David notices is that the law, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. They are trustworthy. God's love is the basis for his word. And knowing that God loves us greatly, we can trust what he puts in his Bible is good and it's for our benefit and we can trust him. And the benefit is that it makes wise the simple. Oftentimes when you see in scripture this word simple, it means someone who is morally deficient. It means someone who is lost spiritually, who is trapped in doing wrong, okay, and needs to be brought back to what is right. 
Well, it makes wise the simple, the wrongdoer. It makes them wise unto the Lord and his ways. Third thing that David notices is the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. There is a wrong way of doing life, and Jesus describes this wrong way as the broad road in Matthew 7. But there is a right way of life, and Jesus calls this way the narrow way. Okay, and God's word guides us to that narrow road. It guides us to all that is right and good. And it is ultimately a map to eternal life. And the benefit for us is it gives us joy along the way because we are obeying what's right. We're doing what's right. We're following the laws that God has set forth, the God of all creation. We are following his laws, and it gives us joy in our heart. I remember being on a, uh, on, on a business trip. God had opened up a door for me to, to share the gospel with, with a friend of mine that I was working with. And he was not a believer, and, but we would have conversations from time to time. But on one business trip, we got talking. And just during the course of the conversation, I just said, hey, but if people follow God's law, if people were to just obey the Bible, you would get rid of this, all these societal ills that we have. Just this and this and this, and you would be done with it. And to his credit, to his credit, he looked back at me. He's like, yeah, that's true, Greg. I can't argue with that. Yeah, if people were to follow what God puts down in his word as being as what he calls us to do, yeah, you, you wipe out all of these societal ills. It's right, and it gives us joy and takes away all of just the strife and the, and the sadness that we see in this world. Fourth thing that David notices is that the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. God's word shines. It shines for us, church. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. It gives light for us, for our eyes. That's a benefit for us. When, uh, if you've ever flown in a plane at night, the pilot in flying to the airport, the all, all airports have runway lights that guide the pilot in and shows him where to land. Okay, God's word is like that. In a dark world, he's calling us, hey, here's where you come land. And, and on the contrary, too, he, it tells us the opposite. It tells us where not to land. It tells us, hey, if you go over here and try to land here, there will be a crash. Okay, God's word is a light calling us to land where he knows is right and is safe and good for us. Then he speaks about the fear of the Lord. He kind of changes it up uh, a little bit. It's like commands, precepts, statutes. Then he goes to the fear of the Lord. And I found this very interesting. I think when David's just taking in God's word and everything he says, the fear of the Lord comes into his mind and he says it's pure. It's uncontaminated. It's unpolluted. Following these ways will keep me pure. I can tell you, church, that there are many times when I'm, fall, when I'm walking with Jesus and it is very, very easy to obey him. I'm just, I'm so in love with him. I'm enjoying him. And it's just, yeah, I'll do that. You don't want me to do that. I won't do that. I will tell you, church, there are other times, though, when I'm walking with Jesus. I'll just be honest with you. The very last thing in the world I want to do is obey him. The last thing in the world I want to do, I don't feel any kind of joy in trying to obey God. But the fear of the Lord is the only thing. The only thing in those moments that keeps me from jumping into sin, that keeps me from diving into this wrong or that wrong. 
The fear of the Lord, it's good, and it's, and it's healthy for us, and it keeps us safe. And the benefit here that David notes, it endures forever. Sin won't always last. Temptation won't always last. But the fear of the Lord, it will endure forever. And then the last thing that, last thing that David notices is that he says it's firm. He says, the decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. God's word is not going anywhere. Cultures change and, people's cha- and people change, but God's word never changes. And it's right for us. It's good for us. And that's the benefit that David notices there. So David thinks about God's word, and he lists out all these benefits. And then he, he kind of surveys. I picture him just surveying all he has. David, King David, he would have had great wealth. He would have had fame, fortune, power. He would have had all the things that the world says that we need to make us happy. And David looks out at all that, and then he says this, though, comparing all the riches, all the goods that he has. He says, Psalm 19, verse 10, he says, They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. God's ways, his laws, his words is better than anything this world can offer. Another psalmist says in Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing, has nothing I desire besides you. All of God's, all, all of God, all of his ways vastly surpass anything that we could have here on this earth. It reminds me of the temptation when Satan's trying to tempt Jesus with this and, and he's hungry. Hey, have food or I'll give you all these kingdoms. And Jesus says no and rebukes Satan with God's word. Jesus knows that those fleeting, temporary things will not satisfy eternally and forever like God's word will and like God himself will. Then David continues in Psalm 19 and verse 11. He says, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Speaking of Satan, our enemy, who Peter says is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. God's word protects us from his schemes. Okay, they protect us from harm. My mom tells a story about when I was younger. I, I think I was like maybe three years old or so. You remember those old electric uh, stoves, the uh, burners that sat up on top, the uh, ringed stoves? Uh, I was near there, and I saw it. It was glowing red, and I reached up my hand, and I put my hand right on that, that stove. And I'm thankful I don't remember that, but my, but my mom tells me that story. And Satan is just like that. Satan is trying to shine before us all the things that the world offers and says, grab hold of it. It's good. But no, God's word warns us from that. He says, no, don't go there. It's a trick. It will hurt you. And then David notices, in keeping them, there is great reward, both here and now, the reward of peace and joy, and the eternal, eternal reward of being with God forever and enjoying him. There is great reward in following God's ways. So after looking at the heavens and then focusing on God's word, the Holy Spirit takes David to the third thing that he causes him to look at today. And the Holy Spirit causes David to turn inward. The third thing that the Holy Spirit causes David to do is turn inward and look at his own soul. You don't have to read far in scripture to notice that. Well, one of the first things you notice is that mankind, men and women, are fallen. 
We are fallen. We have sinned and we rejected God and we tried to go our own way. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then we see Scripture, the entirety of Scripture is God's plan to redeem us, to save us from the situation that we created. Over and over and over again, God is pursuing mankind, and it finds, its, and it finds uh, God's ultimate plan shown to us in Jesus, his son, who went to a cross to die for our sins and give us eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel, church, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he went to a cross to pay the penalty that me and you should have paid. And the result of that is a relationship, a permanent relationship with Jesus starting now and forevermore. That's the good news of the gospel. But the gospel is not good news to someone who doesn't think they need saving. The gospel is not good news to someone who doesn't think they're drowning, who doesn't think that they're lost. And so there must be an awakening in our soul that we are sinners. Okay, when we behold God's creation, when we behold his word, it's God's megaphone to us to say, we are imperfect. We have to look inward, see, see, see the vast distance that separates us from God. God is constantly trying to awaken in people's souls that knowledge. We see this with Jesus over and over again. He's calling people to look inward. You remember in uh, Mark 7 when the Pharisees come and they notice the disciples of Jesus eating with unwashed hands and they complain about it and Jesus says, no, you, you just don't get it. That's not what makes someone unclean. What makes someone unclean is what comes out of their heart. What's living in your heart? Jesus tries to point the focus back to, to people's hearts. The Pharisee of the, I'm sorry, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee who's sitting at the, up at the front of the church is saying, God, I thank you so much that I'm not like this person or this sinner or this the person over here. And yet the tax collector in the, is, in the back of the, uh, is in the back of the temple. And what is he doing? He's just, he's just beating his chest saying, God, forgive me a sinner. And Jesus says, that man is righteous. That man went home righteous. He's trying to point out just that, that that man had an awareness of his sin, and he called out to God. He was forgiven. He went home righteous. God is trying to awaken within all souls this knowledge of sin, and David recognizes it. And he says in verse 12 and 13, But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Lord, forgive my hidden faults. Keep me from willful sins. David just wants to pursue God. He's looking at God's word. He's looking at God's creation. It just then he looks inward. He's like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want any part of sin. The longer you walk with God, the Holy Spirit will keep awakening within you more and more this knowledge of sin within you and this hatred of sin within you. I like how A.W. Pink, an English Bible teacher back in the early 1900s, said, It is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. 
It is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. I, I just, I, I really like that quote. Me and you aren't perfect. If you're, if you're not a, a Christian here today and, and you're not signed up for this Christianity thing, but you're searching, just nobody in this room would stand up and claim perfection. We're not. Scripture tells us, clearly tells us that we're not. Okay, we recognize that. But it's this, this, this desire to be absent from sin. That's, that's one reason why heaven is so glorious, is we won't live in sin anymore when we walk with Jesus in perfection. So question for me and you, am I bothered by sin? Are you bothered by sin? How, how would a bride on her wedding day, she's in her beautiful white dress, and she looks down at her dress, and she just sees the smallest little spot of ink or maybe of dirt? You, you, do you think she'd be ups- okay with that? No, she'd be upset. She, she would be very upset. No, she wants that dress perfect. How much more so, child of God, should me and you grieve for sin? And that grieving for sin will lead to joy. That grieving of sin will lead to joy. As we see Paul say in Romans 7. He says this in Romans 7, 21 through 25. This is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul that wrote like half the New Testament that planted all these churches. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I'm a wretch. So what's the, so what's the solution? I, I need help because I can't fix it on my own. And then Paul says, I love these words, and it should be our anthem, church. Verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you sin and when you fall, yes, grieve over it. Yes, be upset for it. But say what Paul says here. Look, it ends in joy. Thank you, God, because I have no way to get myself out of this. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. You're just filled with joy. Just filled with thanks. Just thank you, God. Thank you. That's all God's asking. Just, just, just thanks. So in summary, what does God cause me and you to want to think about? What, is, what was the Holy Spirit leading David through? One, he was lifting his head up. Look at my creation. Number two, look at my word. And then number three, look inward. Okay? And the beauty of looking in, inward to one more thing, the beauty of looking inward, it leads you to Jesus. Because you look inward, you see your sin, and you go to the only one who can rescue you. So God takes King David on this road, and it, and it ends all the way in Jesus Christ. So, moving on to an application. So the so what for us. So what for us today? David wrote this 3,000 years ago. What does this have to do with me and you today? Church, you will speak of you will think about, you, your heart will desire the very things that you set in front of yourself. You will speak on, you will meditate on what you put in front of your eyes. So I don't have a specific go-do for each of us because I think it would be different for each of us, but I just want to ask a couple questions to get you thinking about what are you putting in front of you? What are you consuming yourself with? Because those are the things that you will speak of and think on. 
So questions. Do you allow yourself to be awed by God? Do you put yourself in positions to be awed by God and to enjoy him? Do you allow yourself time to be awed by God? And if not, if none of those things, if you're not doing any of those things, can I just ask, what is keeping you, what is keeping me from being still? What, are, what is keeping me and you from being awed by God? Okay, and I would just let the Holy Spirit prompt me and prompt you on what we can do to do what King David did here and just put himself out there before God to enjoy him and to marvel at him. All right, church, and then in conclusion, I just want to read off some scripture, and they're all from the New Testament, Jesus and the words of Paul. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Hebrews 3.1 Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, holy brothers and sisters, you're already holy. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. And then finally, Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. God greatly cares about what you and I put our minds and our hearts on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, um, just thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for this light that we have. Thank you for your guidance that we receive. Lord, thank you for your beautiful creation. Everything you created is good. Everything that you created reflects glory back to you. And God, thank you for awakening us. Thank you for showing us, God, the distance that exists between us. And thank you, God, for always pointing us to your son. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus who saves us when we can't save ourselves. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for dying for all of us for our sins. And I pray, God, that you would fill every heart in here with great joy. Fill us with joy, God, as we just consider everything about you. And I ask all of this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.